today we're continuing in our series entitled You Asked For It. These are questions about the Bible and Christian living that you all submitted over the past several months that we are attempting to answer from the scriptures. And so this morning I have a question that I received that we're going to look at today and it goes like this. Why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? Now, oh boy, that is one of the world's oldest questions. And my guess is that the first time this question was probably asked was right after Cain killed Abel. I mean, think about it. I mean, I can't believe that Adam and Eve weren't asking all kinds of questions that go along with losing a son. I mean, this is the first time in human history that any human being died. And you've got to believe that Adam and Eve had a lot of questions about what was going on. This is one of the world's oldest questions, and it's probably also one of the world's most often asked questions. I mean, let's be honest, right? There's a lot of bad stuff that goes on in the world. You know, Now, sometimes stuff happens and people just overreact, right? I mean, we've all known some people who experience some small hurdle in their life, right? And um, they react as though they're being martyred. I mean, some people can't have a hangnail. I mean, I can't have a fingernail, right, uh, a break without, you know, going to pieces, right? I mean, there are some people who can't have their sports team lose without it being the end of the world. You think I'm a little crazy, right? I lived in Pittsburgh for a while, right? And I am not kidding. If the Steelers lost a playoff game or worse, the, the uh, Super Bowl, the next day, I mean, it was a news item on the local news on TV about the big spike in people who called into work sick that day. I'm not kidding. It's on the news. Okay, so some people overreact to small things, but yet there is still a lot of tragic, difficult, bad stuff that happens, right? There's a lot of senseless stuff that happens in our world. Why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, if God is all-powerful and God is good, why does he allow suffering? Why is there evil in the world at all? Why did God let this happen to me? Why didn't God prevent this tragedy? How come God seems to intervene sometimes, but he doesn't intervene some other times? And short and honest answer is, we don't have all the answers to these questions. I know you can buy all sorts of books, and everybody's going to tell you they have all the answers to all this. We don't have all of the answers to all of the things that happen. However, we do have some answers. There are some things that God shows us in his word, but we don't have all the answers all the time. But the good news that I have found is this, that often when you are trying to help somebody who is suffering, who's going through a difficulty, it's really not the answer that matters. I mean, there may be times when you think you have the perfect theological answer or the perfect philosophical answer, and the best thing for you to do in that moment is just zip it and give them a hug. Somebody say amen to that. And pray for them. I mean, that's the mistake Job's miserable friends made, wasn't it? Here Job was suffering, and uh, all they could do was spend their days arguing with him, trying to explain to him what the reason for his suffering was. And God said at the end of it all that he, he rebuked them and said, you have not spoken what is right about me. Even though the Apostle Paul quoted one of them as saying something true. 
And the idea was that even though you may say some true things, he's saying you haven't represented me the right way, the way I want it to be represented. The Bible says to what? Grieve with those who grieve, right? Not explain the situation to those who grieve. All right? Often people who are suffering don't need answers. They, and they certainly don't need platitudes. They need love and support. It's kind of like my aunt. When she was in her 20s, uh, she and, and her husband were trying uh, to conceive and, and have a child. And they went years. They couldn't conceive. And, and finally, they began to pray and fast. And they, they prayed and fasted for several months until finally she conceived. And, and there was all this rejoicing because God had answered their prayer. But at six months, something tragic happened. She lost the baby. She had a miscarriage. And all of these questions came flooding into her heart and her mind. Say, God, how could you allow this to happen? And I remember seeing the pain and the agony and the grief that was in their hearts and on their faces with all of these unanswered questions. God, this was the child that we prayed for. This was the child that was an answer to prayer. How could you allow this to happen? And you know that someone came up to her and said, um, you know, maybe God allowed this to happen so that you could comfort others when this happens to them. And, you know, there's a scripture that um, they're trying to quote there, right? It says, God comforts us in our trouble so that we can comfort others with the comfort we have received, right? They were trying to, to quote that scripture, but they were absolutely wrong, right? You know, you read that scripture carefully, and you know what it says? It says that the reason God comforts us is so that we can comfort others. Right? It does not say the reason stuff happens in your life is so that you can comfort others. Right? That is not what it says. And to represent to somebody who's suffering that, well, you're going through this because God wants to teach you something to help. That, that's the reason this happened to you. That is not God's heart. God does not cause bad things to happen to you just so that you can learn something. And all my I could hear was the, this person saying, well, God killed your child so that you could help other people when God kills their child. Right? God doesn't do that. God, the reason God comforts us is so that we can comfort others. But he doesn't cause these things to happen. People who are suffering need love and support. We don't have all the answers, but sometimes an answer is not what's needed. Now, before we delve into some of the scriptures that we're going to look at today that talk about this subject, I want to make just a few observations together about this question. Now, first is that it's incomplete. It paints kind of an incomplete picture of reality because sometimes good things happen to good people, right? And sometimes bad things happen to bad people. Often, the just and the unjust receive blessings and trials together at the same time. Jesus said that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? And I know we view that sometimes as it's raining on my parade and that's bad. But in that culture, that was a good thing. That was the rainfall was the blessing of God so that they could have good crops. God caused blessings to fall on the just and the unjust. And the next thing I want you to see is this. The good people versus bad people kind of uh, uh, paradigm is, is somewhat of an inaccurate way to look at it. Because Jesus said that there is no one good except God. And the Apostle Paul in Romans said that there is none good, not even one. All have gone their own way, right? There's not even one um, who is good compared with God. And so good things really, I mean, bad things don't really happen to good people. Bad things happen to people. Valuable people 
but bad things happen to people. And the point of this is that there is no one who can say, you know, God, I'm, I'm so good here. All those other people, I can understand why they suffer, but, you know, I'm so good that I, need, I should be exempt from suffering. I've reached a place where I should be exempt from that. There is nobody who has lived such a life that they're exempt from that. If Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came and suffered, then there is nobody who is good enough to be exempt from suffering. However, this does lead us to the next observation, because we can easily rephrase this question, can't we? To say, why do bad things happen to faithful people? Or why do bad things happen to redeemed people? Or or why do bad things happen to one person and, and not the next person? Why did this child get sick and not the other child? Why was this person healed and the other person wasn't? The question is still valid. And they have as many, these questions have as many iterations or formations as there are people in the world, I think. As there are people who have ever suffered. And then there's another thing about this question that I want you to notice, and, and it's this. Questions about suffering seem to be more important to us the closer they hit to home. You know, when someone suffers on the other side of the world, I mean, we may have some compassion for that, but it doesn't usually give us a crisis of faith, right? Like, for example, in a recent survey of a particular religious denomination, and I'm not going to tell you which one it was. It doesn't really matter which one it was, because I think that probably this would be the same throughout America. In this survey, 91% said that they believed that Christian persecution was severe or somewhat severe throughout the world. But only 49% said that they were very concerned about it at all. Right? Why? Because when it's across the world, when it's across the street, somewhere that doesn't affect us, we don't tend to have that type of crisis of faith. But it's only natural that when it gets closer to us, we tend to respond with a more urgent crisis. We have compassion on people we see who are far from us, but we don't tend to have a crisis of faith until it really begins to hit home. And then lastly, questions about suffering seem to be more important to us the more senseless the suffering seems. I mean, when our grandparent, who may be in their 70s or 80s or 90s, when they pass away, um, you know, we're sad, uh, we may grieve, we may, we may shed some tears, but we don't usually have a crisis of faith. We say things like, well, you know, they lived a, a good, long, blessed life, and uh, we're thankful for that, and we, and we have that type of outlook while we grieve, while we're sad. You know, but when a child dies, that's when we begin to have this crisis of faith. I can remember my grandmother, who's still living, who's going to turn 100 in a, in, in a couple weeks, um, often telling me how, how difficult it was for her when her son died in his 50s. And she would often say, a parent shouldn't have to outlive her children. Right? When it seems senseless, it can cause a crisis of faith. So this suffering that, that we deal with, it's real. It's, it's often very painful, and there are real questions that, that I wouldn't want to make light of. And I th- think these observations, they're, they're kind of important, but they don't really get to the question. So I want to begin now to look at what the scriptures have to say about it. And, and this week, what we're going to do is, is focus on some of the broader questions, like why is there suffering in the world at all? And is God concerned about it? And will he do something about it? 
And it's my hope that we can get kind of a, a grasp of what God's heart is towards us in the big picture. And then next week, I want to delve a little bit deeper uh, into how we can cope with suffering in the here and now. Next week, we're going to look at one specific guy and how he dealt with, with suffering and injustice in his world. Now, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I will tell you it's not Job. How many of you immediately thought, oh, he's preaching on Job next week? Okay, a few of you, right? right? It's not Job. It's somebody else. So you'll have to come back to find out who it is. All right, so for this morning, some of the big picture items. First, why is there suffering in the world at all? I mean, if God is good and, and he's a loving God and, and he's all-powerful, why would he allow suffering? I mean, how can those things be reconciled? Now, in case you hadn't noticed, everybody deals with suffering to one extent or another, right? Proverbs 14, it says, Each heart knows its own bitterness. And Jesus said, In this world, you will have trouble. Now, there's a promise for you. How many of you got up and claimed that one this morning? No? That's not your famous favorite scripture to claim? Well, Jesus said it. In this world, you will have trouble. If you're a human, you will experience suffering on some level or another. You know, and it is true that some people, I don't know why, seem to experience sometimes more suffering and injustice than others do. But it would be an exceedingly rare person who goes blissfully through life without ever experiencing any suffering all the way until their 100th birthday when God takes them quietly in their sleep and ushers them into the presence of Jesus. That would be an exceedingly rare person. People suffer. It's part of life. So why does God allow it at all? I mean, did God create evil? Why does he allow it? And So this question does have an answer. So let's look at it. We'll begin in the book of Genesis. Here we find that God created everything good and perfect. As a matter of fact, it says that when he finished creating everything in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was very good. The world wasn't always like we find it today. There was no sickness. There was no disease. There was no sin. There was no death of any kind. Not even among the animals. Uh, the people and animals, they all ate vegetables. The lion laid down with the lamb. And the crocodiles didn't eat the zebras. Seems like it's always the zebra that gets it. Right? There was no suffering of any kind. Now, it doesn't say it, but in my opinion, it was also 72 degrees and breezy, uh, with a light breeze all the time. (laughs) Some of you may disagree with that, but that's just my opinion, but it's not in the Bible, right? It was an idyllic state, and it flowed from God's character. It flowed from his goodness and from who he is. There is no death in God. There is no sickness in God. There's no sin or evil in God. And so the creation reflected God's character and God's order. It was very good. That's how he made it. Very good. And so how did we go from this very good, idyllic state to what we see now, which is so often characterized by stuff that is opposite from God's character? Well, as we continue to look at the story of Genesis, we see that God put one more thing into one of his creations that was not in itself evil, but the creation used for evil. All right? It was free will. It's the capacity to choose for yourself, the, the ability to see both right and wrong and choose what you will do. 
It's described in Genesis chapter 2. Um, in the one command that God gave humanity in the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But okay, so God gives them this one command. One thing that is wrong to do. And the giving of the command necessitates a free will, ability to choose. Because without the capacity to disobey the command, the command would just be senseless. The command would be meaningless. So God gave us this free will. And, you know, I, I've heard all sorts of arguments, philosophical arguments, theological arguments about this one way or the other. Why did God give us this free will? Why didn't he just force us to choose what is right? And, and on and on and on. And uh, some argue that if he didn't give us this free will, you know, then all of this evil wouldn't have happened. And others will, will note that without the free will, we would be little more than automatons performing his will without real love for him. You know, all of that stuff is really secondary. Because the fact of the matter is, Anyone can see and look around. We have a free will. That's what we deal with. God gave us this free will. And it led to something important in the next chapter, Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, we see the man and the woman are, are tempted by the serpent to eat the fruit from the tree that was forbidden. And they exercised their free will, and Eve took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she also gave some to her husband, and he ate it. And the result that we see is a curse that came upon the world and upon humanity. The idyllic world that once was, was no more. It was cursed. Now there would be elements and events in the natural world that, that weren't there when God created it. Things that did not reflect his character. Work would be difficult. Making a living would be difficult. Giving birth would be exceedingly difficult. Weather patterns changed. Now there would be storms and disasters and severe weather that caused suffering. In the garden, there were no tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis. Now we have to deal with that kind of suffering. And sin was also introduced to the human race. And, and this led to all kinds of untold suffering and violence. Sins that people commit against each other. And none of this was in the garden. It is not how God created it. None of this was created or reflects God's character. And as you look at the rest of the Bible, one of the currents or threads that you can see working through the rest of the Bible and human history is this outworking of sin that began here. This, this sin coming to fruition and, and growing through the rest of the Bible and through the scriptures. You know, have you ever noticed that when you study history, a lot, maybe not all, but a lot of what you're studying is the brutal conquest of one people over another? You ever notice that? I mean, I can remember my high school history teacher. She had above her chalkboard, whatever else changed in her room, this never changed. Above her chalkboard, she had up there the saying from Robert Burns, um, man's inhumanity to man has made countless thousands more. It's a description of the outgrowth of sin that started in the Garden of Eden. It sums up a lot of human history. And then finally, death was introduced as well. Paul said it this way in Romans, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sin. In the garden, nobody died. Death isn't part of God's character. He's the essence of life. He's a life giver. But now he told Adam, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. 
For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Sin causes separation from God. And it's a separation from God that leads to death. Now, this really isn't God pronouncing and carrying out a death sentence on humanity. This is God observing and pronouncing the natural result of the separation that was produced by the sinful act of a free will. Sin, separation, suffering, sickness, and death. All of this is in the world that we deal, deal with. That this is the world that we live in because of this rebellion in the garden. Now, this is not to say that if a person is suffering or if something bad happens to them, that it is necessarily the result of some specific sin in their life, right? Now, sometimes it could be, right? I mean, if you drink yourself under the table until you get cirrhosis of the liver, well, that, that's kind of on you, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you chain smoke until you get early onset emphysema and COPD, that, that's kind of on you, right? Or, or if you're unfaithful to your, to your spouse and it ends up ruining your marriage, it's kind of on you. Sometimes there is suffering that comes because of our own specific sin, right? But it's a mistake to say that just because you see someone suffering that, well, it has to be because of sin, right? The disciples made that error, right? They came and said, saw a blind man and said, well, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And uh, Jesus said, neither his, this man or his parents sinned, right? They completely misunderstood all right, so now, so far we've, know, we've noted that sin and suffering, they're not part of God's character. They didn't originate with God. Uh, suffering is a result of sin in the world, not a specific sin, but sin in general in the world. And we, we live in a world that is characterized by suffering on many levels. Now, at this point, a lot of people might ask, you know, and might rightly ask, well, you know, if that's the case, well, then does God care at all? I mean, is he indifferent to our suffering? Is he angry with us and just leaving us to our punishment? Does he, does he look at us and our suffering and just say, well, hey, you got yourself into this. You get yourself out of it. Well, I'm glad you asked that. Because there's one more important thing here in Genesis before we move on that I want you to see. And it can be seen in what God said to the serpent after, who had tempted Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and will eat us all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here we see right at the beginning, God is introducing the idea of redemption. The idea of a savior, of a redeemer who would destroy and crush the work of the serpent. This person, this offspring of the woman would destroy the work of the devil in separating humanity from God. And so we see this current or thread of sin is not the only thread that progresses throughout the Bible and human history. Here we see this thread of the Messiah, of a Savior, of a Redeemer, also progresses through the Bible and throughout history. This thread of hope progresses. We can see it in, in Abraham, when God told him that through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. 
We can see it in Moses when he told the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. We can see it in David when David established a type of messianic worship where people had access to God. And we can see it in his David's faith in the Messiah in Psalm 110 when he described the Messiah who would not only be his descendant but would be his Lord as well. And when he described the Messiah who would sit at God's right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet and he would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that all of those who wrote from Moses through all of the prophets testified about him, testified about the Messiah. But maybe none talk about the restoration that the Messiah would bring as clearly as the prophet Isaiah did. Listen to some of these scriptures. Many times, Isaiah's prophecies describe restoration to God's ideal that was lost in the garden. In Isaiah 55, he says, You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. Did you catch that? Remember in the garden when the curse came, he said, now it's going to produce thorns and thistles. But here, Isaiah, looking forward to the messianic kingdom of God, says, no more thorns and thistles, but good things are going to grow. And then in chapter 2 of Isaiah, he describes this restoration so beautifully. He says, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted among the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle their disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Say, that's what the kingdom of the Messiah does. Here's another one in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Say, the kingdom of the Messiah is a great kingdom, isn't it? Listen to it described in Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then, Jesus showed up. Jesus arrives on the scene, and at the very beginning of his ministry, he quotes this very passage from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. Now, the Spirit of God had, had just um, driven Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And you remember the first Adam, when he was tempted by the devil, he couldn't resist, right? But this Adam, the second Adam, was able to overcome him by the word of God. And he had returned in, uh, in verse 14. He was at the synagogue in, in Galilee, and it says he's in the power of the Spirit. He goes to this synagogue in Nazareth, and one of the first things he says to them as he is beginning his ministry is this, a partial quote from this prophecy in Isaiah that we just read. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down and told them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this was a very famous, well-known passage about the Messiah. The people would have immediately recognized this as a messianic scripture. And Jesus says it is fulfilled in their day, in their hearing. He is the Messiah that, that Genesis and Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and all the prophets talked about. But I want you to notice something important about this. Jesus only quotes the first half of the passage. The Isaiah passage had two parts, right? The first part had to do with the suffering Messiah and his mission. To proclaim the good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set prisoners free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was the mission of the suffering Messiah. The second part had to do with the reigning Messiah. To proclaim the day of God's vengeance, to minister to those who were grieving, to replace the ashes of our lives with crowns of beauty, to replace mourning with joy, to replace despair with praise, and to establish people permanently before him in an eternal relationship. That's the mission of the reigning Messiah. And Jesus, in quoting just the first part of that passage, is saying, now this is what I'm here to do now. Because they all thought the reigning Messiah was coming first. But Jesus is saying, no, first the suffering Messiah. First comes this, I have some things that I need to accomplish first. Right now, I've come to be despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering and, and familiar with pain. I've come to take up the pain and bear your suffering. I've come to be pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. I've come to take the punishment that will bring you peace and to take your wounds. That will bring you healing. He came first as the suffering, as the suffering Messiah. Say, does God care? He cared to send his one and only son who, being without sin, would willingly go to the cross and pay the penalty and suffer there the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Does God care? God cares about humanity. Last question this morning. Will God do something to end suffering? Will God do something to end suffering? Even if God cares, suffering still exists, right? Well, he came the first time as a suffering Messiah. But the Bible says that he is coming again as a reigning Messiah. And it's described like this. In, you're going to like this. You think that's good. Wait till you hear about it. Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11, he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The one who died for us is coming back for us again. And then the Bible says, it shows a lot of things that happen after that return. It says, first there's this thousand year reign of peace, Jesus reigning on this earth. In a thousand years of peace. And then it's after that, that serpent, the one who instigated all of this pain and all of this suffering and all of this separation from God, it says that serpent, the devil, is thrown into the lake of fire where he'll be tormented forever and ever. And then this after that, something called the great white throne judgment in which all the dead appear before God and they're, they're judged according to what they had done. And it says that anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. But this judgment holds no fear for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life because of what Jesus has done for us. Then after all that, and this is what I really want you to see this morning, this is what I've been driving towards. This is what the scriptures, the whole story of the scriptures is driving towards. Ever since that fall in Genesis, this is where God's been moving towards. Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Hallelujah. Praise God. This is what the Bible and all of history has been pushing forward towards. This is God's end goal. God did not abandon us in the garden. Here we see a complete restoration of the harmony and beauty that was in the Garden of Eden. Only this time, it's not just for two people. It's for a great multitude that no one can number. It's for all the redeemed of God. And this time, it's not just for a walk in the, in the garden in the, in the cool of the evening, but it's for all eternity. God himself living with us and being our God and we his people. He will be our light and his face will shine upon us. And then look what else happens at this time. Verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. All those evils that we ask God about, all of those injustices, all the sickness, all the pain, the mourning, the crying, it's all gone. You know, people often ask, why doesn't God do something about all this pain and suffering? Well, he did do something. He gave his one and only son to suffer for us. 
And he's going to do something. He's going to come again and set up his kingdom again. That idyllic, utopian life that is free from pain and suffering will be reality. And not only that, look at the personal nature of this. I mean, look at the scripture again. He, God, will wipe every tear from their eye. Here is a picture. I mean, and, and if you can have faith to believe it, I believe that God, if you are suffering now, God would do this for you now. He would hold you in his arms, and he would wipe every tear from your eye. He cares that much. That picture that you see there, that's hanging up on my wall, called Safely Home. It's this image of someone just arriving in heaven, and, and Jesus rushing off the throne to, to, to greet him, to grab him in his arms. Like he's so glad to see him there. I believe that's God's heart for each one of you. That whenever God determines it, whether, whether he, he tarries and, and someday you know, we pass on and go into glory, or whether we're still alive when he comes back, that that's God's heart for you. He would rush off his throne and, and grab you and hug you and say, I am so glad that you are here. Let me wipe your pain away. I believe that is God's heart. So we've seen from scriptures that God answers some of our questions. Why is there suffering at all? Because of the fall. Does God care? Yes, he sent a suffering Messiah. Will God end suffering? Yes, he will send the reigning Messiah. And so as we get ready to conclude this morning, if I could have the team come back. Kind of want to conclude this message. It's kind of the same way that Jesus concludes his thoughts on this this morning. After the creation in Genesis, after the fall, after the suffering Messiah came and died for us and rose from the dead, after he's returned and restored all things and all is done, these are some of his last words. He's speaking to the Apostle John and to us as well. And he gives us two choices, just like he did in the garden. Verse 6, he says, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So just like in the garden, Jesus asks us one more time to exercise our free will. We have two and only two pathways that we can choose. One is the way of sin that leads away from God, to separation from God for all eternity. And the other is the way of faith in Jesus that leads to redemption and leads to life and leads to all eternity with God our Father. And he says you have a choice. And really, God allowing us that choice is one of the most loving things that he can do. He is respecting us. He's not forcing us to make that choice. He wants us to make the choice that will bring us to him for all eternity. But he will let us choose. And at the very end of all things, he asks us about that choice again. What a tragedy it would be for someone to endure pain and hardship in this life and then miss out on the comfort 
and the blessings of being with God forever. So would you all bow your heads with me for a moment? And I want to pray for you. And I first want to ask, how many of you would say, you know, Pastor Paul, I've got something that I'm going through. I mean some bad stuff that's in my life. It's not, it's, it's not a broken thing. It's some bad stuff. I don't understand it. I'm not sure exactly what to do with it. But I'm going to face it by walking as faithfully as I can with Jesus. He'd like me to pray for you. You lift your hand up and say, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. Yeah, all over this place. Yeah. Yep, I see that hand. Other hands. So yeah, I'm going through something right now. I'm just making my statement of faith. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk with Jesus. Amen. Thank you for those hands. Amen. How many of you would say this? I, I just feel like from the Spirit as I was preparing this, would say to me, you know what? Pastor Paul, there's something bad from my past. It happened. I don't know how long back, you know, but, it, but it's in your past. And it keeps on reaching into your today. You know, and it just keeps on reaching and, and, and doing negative things in your today. But you want to say, you know what? I just want to lay that down. Jesus minister to me today. But that's me. I get this thing I want to get rid of that just keeps on reaching today into today. And you say, Pastor Paul, remember me. And uh, I'm not going to call you out or anything like that or embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. Yeah, yeah. Pastor Paul, I've got that thing. Thank you for that hand. And, and uh, is anyone else? That hand, thank you. I've got something. Jesus loves you so much. I believe that today he would take you in his arms, wrap his arms around you and say, I love you. It's going to be okay. All right, let me just ask one more question. Is there anyone here who would say to me, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm not sure right now if I'm right with God. I've never really given my life to Jesus. I'm not sure if my name is written in that book. But today I want to be sure, and I'm, and I'm willing to forsake sin and turn from it and turn to Jesus because I believe that Jesus died for my sin and for my pain. And today I just want to make sure that my name is written in heaven. And, uh, and uh, would you remember me in prayer? Because I want to receive Christ. Is anyone like that here today? Thank you for that hand. Anyone else that hand? Thank you for that. Any others that I can see? Thank you for that hand. Thank you for that hand. Anyone else? I can tell you. Serving Jesus is the greatest, most awesome thing. It doesn't make life easy, but doesn't exempt you from trials, or difficulties, or suffering. But knowing that the God who loves you, the God of the universe, wants to embrace you in the end of it all. Serving Jesus is the greatest thing. And I, I never regretted giving my life to Jesus. I believe everyone here who loves him would say the same thing. So here's what I'm going to do first. I'm going to ask you all if you just repeat this prayer after me. It's a prayer to receive Jesus. It's not a magical prayer or anything like that. But as you pray this with faith in your heart, God's going to do exactly what you ask him to do. So would you all out loud pray this after me? Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't redeem myself. But I believe that Jesus died for me. That he rose from the dead. And that he's seated at the Father's hand. And so I give my life to you. I give you control of my life. And I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. If you did that with faith, God has done exactly what he's asked, you've asked him to do. And I encourage you now, walk with him. If you need help, need a Bible or anything like that, we'll get that to you. But I encourage you, walk with him. So now, would you all stand with me? And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. And um, I'm going to ask as I pray, would the prayer counselors come, prayer team come and make yourselves available here. And if you're one of those people that raised their hand, you've got something you're going through or something you want prayer for, um, make your way. If they're singing this song again, um, uh, God of my days, uh, make your way here and get someone to agree with you in prayer and in faith. Or maybe just find a place in the pews or here at the altar to pray and seek God and let him do his thing in you. God, you saw all the hands that went up. God, um, some who said, God, that uh, uh, they're going through something right now. God, and it's difficult. They don't know what to do with it, but they're going to walk with you. I pray for strength, God. I pray for your, your hand upon them. And God, that uh, you would just do your thing and encourage them, that, that they would be able to sense the loving arms of the Heavenly Father, of the Savior Jesus, embracing them and helping them and walking with them, not just today, but all week long, God. May the grace of God flow to them. And I pray for a couple who raise their hand saying, you know what? There's something from their past that keeps trying to come into the present. But those things are under the blood of Jesus. Those things are in the past, God. And I pray that you would give healing in the name of Jesus, God. A touch in the name of Jesus, God. Heal hearts, heal minds in the name of Jesus. And God, now as we take some time to pray around the altars, God, I pray that you would just do your thing, God, and that you would have your way among us, God, and minister to your people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone that said... Amen and amen. Amen.